Welcome to another exciting episode of NIDS Knowledge, this one being Real Space Strategy Edition. This podcast is produced by the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we will inform you about the latest in space strategy and its importance to our national defense. Recently, at a warfare conference in Colorado, the Space Force leadership, including Secretary of the Air Force Kendall and Chief of Space Operations Chance Saltzman, laid out what they called the reoptimization of the Space Force for what again? Great power competition. They say that great power competition means that they need to be ready for war. No arguments there. And they mention even George Washington's State of the Union address where he quoted, to be prepared for war is one of the most effectual means of preserving peace. But that which has made us ready for the counter-VEO, meaning counterterrorism wars of the last two decades, will not ready us for the challenges of great power competition. One of the things they say in their reoptimization handbook that came out as part of their press release is that an enduring part of great power competition is conducting low-intensity operations without compromising high-intensity readiness. The military of a great power must have the capacity to engage in a protracted day-to-day competition with its rival. Failing to do so sees advantage. At the same time, and they emphasize this, a great power military must also prepare for high-intensity conflict, demonstrating the combat-ready credibility that underscores deterrence. Failing to do so creates vulnerability. Therefore, to be effective in great power competition, military force structures must be sized and scoped to do both simultaneously. Then, later on in the document, they mention that the establishment of the Space Force was a response to the demands of great power competition in the space domain. But they say that their organizational constructs, processes, and policies are suboptimized for the great power security environment. Looking into historical analyses of yesteryear, especially the last time we were in a great power competition type environment, which was the Cold War period, several scholars of nuclear deterrence and deterrence in general practice, such as Colin S. Gray and William R. Van Cleve, put together some criteria that they think everybody should ask, especially Congress, to find out if any posture that they're pursuing or currently have is ready to go for such a great power competition or if deterrence should fail a major conflict. This criteria includes everything from deterrence value, deterrence failure, escalation control, counterforce targeting, the extent of counterforce capability, force structure, and what we want to deter in the first place. So I'm going to go through these questions here as a way to kind of look at um, this reoptimization plan, which is ironic to me, given the fact that the Space Force is only three, almost four years old or so. The 2018 National Defense Strategy was the first document that said we should be reoptimized for great power competition. That was in 2018. Space Force came in 2019, and yet somehow three years later, the Space Force is not reoptimized. And if you look at the document, it seems like there's a disconnect between force posture and the adversary reality, as we'll see as we go through these these questions. So here's some questions that I think Congress should ask the Space Force and the Department of the Air Force regarding this reoptimization for great power competition, and in connection with the with the comprehensive strategy report to Congress that we talked about a few episodes ago. 
So the first question is, will the adjustments applying to reoptimization for the Space Force proposed mean that we will be more or less able to deter various threats and to negate the effectiveness of threats to the United States and its allies? The United States strategic policy must be unmistakably deterring. Now, to be unmistakably deterring, they say there are three conditions of deterrence, credibility, intention, and capability and intention combined. Credibility is the key piece here, and obviously we're talking credibility in the mind of the adversary, as well as in that of the allies and the American public. Credibility is key, and according to William R. Van Cleve, it says this, quote, Credibility can be achieved through building a force structure which can successfully meet the needs of the following criteria. The capability, in other words, appropriate weapons, the means of delivery, the invulnerability or survivability of weapons, which is achieved through concealment and secrecy, dispersal, preparedness, hardening, mobility, and number, the invulnerability of command and control systems, and even civil defense. This should include a clear understanding of the importance of the threatened intent, as well as a clear understanding of the threatener's determination. This credibility is one thing that we are not really seeing in this document. This document, um, for whatever reason, argues that we are here to sustain and we're built for space superiority, when in reality we have no such weapon systems capability, and the ones we do have, as we'll talk about in a little bit, are either not of the, of the similar type that the adversary is building, predictably China and Russia in some degree, but that if we do have them, we don't have enough of them to begin with. So there's no threat, there's no credibility, and we're all basing off of resiliency which while a good thing is not enough to deter an enemy. Question two, quote, are the adjustments to policy and organizational structure, which we see more of in this one than we do policy adjustments, are the adjustments more likely to increase or decrease our chances for controlling escalation in the event of war, as good strategic policy should offer some prospect for the limitation of damage on Earth and in space, either by making provision for intra-war deterrence and for war termination short of inventory exhaustion, meaning the weapons, or by the removal of civilians from a hostage condition. Now in the nuclear context, they're talking about holding cities at risk, but in the context of space and space warfare, we're talking about critical infrastructure and the linkage, the inextricable linkage between space systems such as GPS, satellite communications, timing signals, things of that sort, in with both space-based critical infrastructure and terrestrial-based critical infrastructure. Those things can harm, as we've seen in recent episodes about GPS signal jamming, putting passengers at risk and on sea and in the air, and other sorts of, uh, of system shutdowns. So that's what we mean by that. Question three asks, do we wish to be more or less able to discriminate between military targets and civil or commercial ones? To attack militarily relevant targets selectively without ne the necessity of widespread urban and population destruction. Now, in our context, we would probably change that to critical infrastructure, meaning the negative effects or destruction of such things through space attack. The targeting of counterforce vice countervalue targets is most valuable in the political realm. Targeting should be of such scale and character as to preclude any temptation abroad by the enemy to explore politically coercive possibilities. So 
let me quick explain some terms that you just heard there. First, we got counterforce. Counterforce in the nuclear deterrence sphere is talking about attacking armed forces. So using weapon systems of various types, in this case, nuclear weapons, but dealing with the space force with space weaponry, whether ground to space, space on space, or space to ground, or counter value targets, such as critical infrastructure, such as um, GPS in space, or the ground segment nodes that such satellite constellations are integral and integrally connected to. Um, when you look at space attack options from the Chinese perspective, you see that they have a spectrum of operational impact that they're looking at using their multi-layered, multi-segment attack architecture for. Everything from psychological impact to full-scale grave aftermath, as they call it in one of their strategy documents. So everything from a, not a reversible non-kinetic strike all the way up to electromagnetic pulse are things that we must understand that they are considering and they are deploying capabilities for, as we see in numerous publicly available unclassified intelligence reports. As Colin S. Gray and William R. Van Cleve state about targeting policy, which we've seen a lot of articles recently that speak to targeting units, intelligence-related uh, units that are for targeting issues, um, we see it says targeting policy must be supported by sufficient dedicated intelligence assets focused on potential targets. Additionally, the targeting policy should be adjusted to account for reloads, mobiles, and other key unknowns. A survivable strategic reserve coupled with a flexible targeting system reduces the attacker's confidence in the outcome of his attack and provides a solid basis on which to propose war termination options. So in our space context, we're talking about space situational awareness, and space domain awareness. All of that is key. Having the ability to know what's going on in space and what is threatening our space infrastructure with is very important. However, unlike other editorials and other papers that have recently come out from other think tank sources and even some government sources, space domain awareness assets in and of themselves and knowledge of what is going on in space in and of themselves is not a deterrent despite the best arguments that they are putting forth to that degree. ISR of any type, whether space domain awareness or space situational awareness, is only good at preventing surprise if it's good enough and has enough coverage. And obviously the United States and its allies have been working with their commercial partners either to try to fill all the gaps and holes going out to at least geostationary Earth orbit about 22,000 miles and eventually out to cislunar space as China is pushing their way out there from a military and a civil exploration standpoint. So that's something we gotta keep in mind. There's a lot of discussion about what is a legitimate target in space and what is not. I think the best way to start from that to answer this question for Congress is to look at how the enemy thinks and base our counter strategy based on that and not on being able to absorb hits, which is not deterrence. It's allowing the attack in the first place and relying on some sort of repercussion that will horizontally, such as through the other domain options or the multi-domain options of attacking back, which to me leads to more escalation and not less, which is totally opposed to these questions of what makes a good posture that these two scholars are suggesting. And I'm suggesting that we apply to an analysis of such a reoptimization. So question three, to what extent do we want a counterforce capability, meaning what extent, how much of a warfighting space capability should we have? How accurate and effective do we want this posture to be? Should it be 
it should, and, and they say this, they say it should be the equal at least of the strategic posture of any rival state, given a reasonable net assessment of relative strategic strength. The United States should seek to minimize collateral damage through more accurate weapons. Now, in our respect, as you see in this reoptimization, in the comprehensive strategy, in any of the other major documents that the Space Force considers to be legitimate or not, you see an argument where basically the Chinese are able to develop their systems from non-kinetic to full-up kinetic, even to nuclear or conventional fractional orbital bombardment terrestrial attack options, and the United States of America is not. We keep articulating publicly that our posture is one of resilience and taking a hit and or being able to watch and keep an eye on what's going on. That doesn't prevent an attack. And so what they're saying is, is we should think through what kind of a force capability we need in case war happens in space as an operating in a war fighting domain. And this current one talks mostly, this current reoptimization, I should say, talks more about changing the names of organizations, realigning other organizations under new organizations, or other sorts of uh, rearranging the deck chairs, as some people like to say in DC. Um, when you, what we basically are also seeing here is what William Van Cleve called back in the 1970s a gap between official strategic doctrine, or in our case, talking points, uh, and actual force capabilities. So his opinion on back in the 70s with regard to a, a gap between our nuclear doctrine and strategy and objectives on the one hand and our capabilities and progress on the other is a very serious problem, he says. He said, what do we do with a surviving force given Soviet attack capabilities that would in all probability be much closer to the McNamara 400 equivalent megaton assured destruction capabilities than to the force required to meet present targeting objectives. What does having such a force mean for deterrence and strategic or crisis stability or for extended deterrence and foreign policy? While having a strategic plan and doctrine beyond current capabilities is useful for force planning purposes, what is the relevance to the actual capabilities and realistic options that would exist should deterrence fail at the strategic nuclear level? Now, using that viewpoint and applying it to our current space situation, we do have a gap between our doctrine, which is 90% written for space support and not for space warfighting, despite the use of the terms such as warfighting objectives and things of that sort and even combat capable. Um, in many cases, if you look at our real capabilities that are articulated publicly, what you're going to find is, is that we're still primarily a, a combat support force and not a combat capable force, despite hearing that phrase. So what he's saying is, is this is not a very good thing. If there's a gap between what we say we're able to do and what we really can do, then that puts us in danger. And that's something that needs to be addressed in detail, I believe, by Congress. Now, going back to question number four now, he, they argue, do we wish to improve it principally by changes in targeting plans or improve it still further by changes in the physical capabilities of our forces? Deterrence must not only prevent the Chinese, in our case, from launching a space or space-based attack, non-kinetic, kinetic, conventional, or nuclear, on U.S. critical infrastructure or civil commercial space infrastructure, but also extends to the protection of our allies and other strategic interests in space and on Earth. Now, I modified that, obviously, to deal with our current circumstance, but these are the questions we need to be asking. And I think that we're not asking that. We're too busy giving lip service to dealing with the threat 
while instead of actually telling Congress what is necessary and needed, we're trying to take the high road rather than um, having the capabilities that we need to fight in space, from space, and to space, as our enemy is clearly achieving. And the last question that I think is also important is what do we want to deter? And if you look at my, my original book, Reversing the Tao, that came out several years ago, I put in what I think we should be able to deter, but it, should that be any space attacks? Non, it could be reversible, which we pretty much consider to be status quo, day-to-day -day normal now, or as a norm of behavior, should we only look at kinetic space attacks as a thing that we need to deter? And some of the lower threshold reversible non-kinetic attacks, um, as I mentioned, are a constant at this point. And we have not been very clear on this, despite the true norm of behavior in orbit and beyond as being that of a perceived low threshold multi-segment attack upon US space critical infrastructure. And these attacks, in addition to being multi-segment, are also multi-sector, given the fact that since Desert Storm, the nexus between military, civil, and commercial sectors have become blurred in the space warfighting and support force activity. The adversaries see that, and while a lot of similar capabilities such as missile warning and GPS and advanced high-level nuclear command and control communication satellites have been used for tactical purposes and therefore are considered fair game targets by the Chinese. So looking back on all this and those questions, um, the assessment that I come to is that we do have a gap today between the articulated defense space policy of the DOD and the actual capabilities, i.e. weapons or lack thereof, and the doctrine for employment. We have the policy but lack the capabilities. With regards to strategic stability in space, we do have a serious imbalance in counterspace forces, one that's advantages remain on the side of the adversary and not on the United States. During the late 1970s, as this paper was written that I'm quoting from, the concern in nuclear strategy circles was about vulnerability of the missile forces. Did we have enough missiles, warheads, and accuracy to maintain the balance and not give a perception of weakness that would lead to a perception among allies and neutrals of Soviet strategic superiority. Now, in 2024, it seems that we believe that a perception of weakness through a lack of capability and the deferment of space superiority and weapons overmatch to the Chinese is somehow a good thing and not something to be concerned about for stability purposes. How is weakness on one side the definition of stability? I have no idea. Having overwhelming overmatch, as they call it, is something that General Power of Cold War Strategic Air Command days believed was necessary to ensure deterrence and what he called the insurance policy in case of deterrence failure. While it can be understood that diplomatic and other instruments of national power do have a place in strategic level deliberations, they do not have the same effect or insurance type against aggression across domains, even space. Given the adversary has demonstrated the ability to hit targets kinetically, across all orbital regimes, low Earth orbit up to geostationary Earth orbit, demonstrated the ability for co-orbital or in-space counterspace operations, and fractional orbital bombardment capabilities for terrestrial strike, both nuclear and conventional, the overmatching capabilities for space deterrence and warfighting lies in favor of the Chinese, or at the very least is rapidly moving in that direction. Other space warfighting means, such as lasers, electromagnetic warfare assets, and high-powered microwave weapon systems continue to proliferate across the Chinese, the Russians, and other adversary nations, while U.S. numbers of electromagnetic warfare assets continue to remain in less than credible numbers 
and our capabilities to, quote, punch back, as they say, either don't match what the Chinese have or in such low quantities to be less than incredible defensive or offensive tools against a more robust enemy. While taking the moral high ground and prohibiting kinetic anti-satellite testing might feel good to the Alliance of Arms Control and Space Environmental Movements, it does not aid in creating strategic stability in space or on Earth. It is damaging to both. Allowing the adversary states like China to have a credible multi-layered, multi-segment strike force, while the U.S. continues to focus on integrating space capabilities, in other words, support systems to the joint force, quote-unquote, this just incentivizes the Chinese's use of their suite of military space warfighting options and increases instability in the space domain and, by extension, on Earth. This is indeed a problem. Renaming and reorganizing currently approved resources postured for combat support and reliant upon other terrestrial forces does little to remedy the threat of war in space and creates the risk for more escalatory options given the reliance on conventional and nuclear forces that are already stretched thin and cut to the bone with other responsibilities worldwide. Rather than doing another deck chair shuffle organizationally, the service should be honest with Congress and so should the administration. We lack what we need to address the threat in space. We must have the resources and the weapon systems capable of achieving at least parity and at best space superiority in order to be prepared for any great power war in the near future. To continue to play games with our national security interests in space is to continue to place our people and our critical infrastructure at risk, and that is unacceptable to myself and I believe to most American citizens. So with that, that'll conclude this episode of Real Space Strategy. I'm Christopher Stone. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to NID's Knowledge, Real Space Strategy. The Real Space Strategy Edition is produced under NID's Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NID's. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent on donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I want to thank our producer, Kimberly Sherrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative NIDS knowledge.